trying to do due diligence and really sort of uncover, like, is this a cultural fit? Are the finances going to hold? Are they going to keep scaling? Do you like the people that you're doing a deal with? But if you can do all those, if you do all those things, I mean, if you're, if you're patient enough and you look at a lot of deals, you eventually will find opportunities that really can scale the business. It really are those 2.2 plus 2 equals 5 moments that, that drive a ton of value. Hello and welcome. My name is Brent Weaver and this is The Digital Agency Show. The podcast that goes behind the scenes with today's top agencies and entrepreneurs. I am really glad you're here. And once again, it's time to transform your business mindset. We've put together an agency accelerator package for agency owners and growing freelancers looking to scale. We've got all kinds of free resources like the 39 lead gen strategies checklist, our $20,000 website proposal template, live trainings hosted by yours truly, free access to our community group, and much, much more. Get access now and dive in at yougurus.com forward slash agency. That's yougurus.com forward slash agency. Hey, what's up, podcast listeners, digital agency owners? Welcome to another episode of the Digital Agency Show. I'm your host, Brent Weaver, and today we're hanging out with David Rodnitsky. He is the founder of Agentic Shift, a consulting firm that helps marketing agency founders through the mergers and acquisition process. Prior to Agentic Shift, David founded 3Q Digital. He grew 3Q from one person in a coffee shop to more than 325 people in 11 offices. I assume not still working in a coffee shop, managing more than $2 billion <laughs> of online spend. David, welcome to the program. Thanks, Brent. Great to be here. So, uh, yeah. So you're, you're, you're helping agencies with the M&A stuff, which is super cool. I want to talk about that. But, yeah. I mean, a meteoric rise for the, for the agency. When, when did you found uh, Agentic? So the agency was 3Q Digital. And Agentic is the agent is my uh, consulting business, but I started 3Q Digital in 2008. Okay, I I sort of see myself. I think probably like a lot of agency founders. I think I was kind of an ac- accidental founder. Yeah, I was in a situation where I was working for a company doing their all their marketing, and um, it was a cl- it was a combination of a lot of events. And number one was the, con- the company was getting an F from the Better Business Bureau, which which is really a challenge. Actually, I mean, it's you know you have to work hard to get an F. Um, or not work hard, as the case may be. Uh, culturally, it was there was a lot of political fighting, and I was losing the politics. And then uh, my wife was pregnant. Uh, towards the end of it, she was eight months pregnant, and I was flying to India once a quarter to manage a team over there. And um, as a, if, if I know this isn't a parenting uh, podcast, but don't be in India if your wife is eight months pregnant um, is kind of a rule of thumb, unless she's in India, of course, which in that case would be fine. <laughs> So for all those reasons, I, that's why I sort of left and started an agency in, in 2008. Yeah. So 3Q started in a, uh, a coffee shop, I guess, you know, accidental. So, so you, when you say accident, you, you couldn't keep doing the thing you were doing and you're like, I'm going to go do my own thing. Yeah. I just, I just knew I didn't want to be at that company anymore. And I think I'd just been tired of working for the proverbial man for, for yeah. seven or eight years. And so I literally just threw a bunch of things at the wall at that coffee shop. I started a uh, couple affiliate sites. I had a wrinkle cream affiliate site that actually did pretty well until it got hacked. Um, I was playing online poker. I had a couple of dot com like you know unicorn ideas that I was building. But then people just kept calling me and asking me for help specifically on Google advertising because that's what I've been doing since 2000. And 
What, you know, what like, was your first, your first, uh, I guess, agency client? What was, I mean, obviously it sounds like it was a Google advertising client. What, what were they doing? Yeah. Uh, I mean, my first client, I think, was a, was a company called LifeStreet. They were doing uh, lead generation to, to uh, beauty salons and nail, nail salons and Botox companies. And it was, it was guys that I'd known for, for many years. And they just kind of said, look, well, if you're, if you're a freelancer, just come in and, and help us build this product out. So, um, you know, in the early days, I was charging, I think my minimum fee was $500 a month. So I would nice. take anyone who came in the door pretty much. Just try to keep the lights on. Again, I mean, my objective was really just to find something where I didn't have to work for someone else again. But of all those businesses, or I mean, online poker wasn't a business, but of all those <laughs> money-making schemes, if you will, people just kept calling me and asking me for the search engine marketing help. And that's kind of what was starting to make more and more of my, uh, my uh, revenue. So at some point, I just decided to just chase what, what people were asking me to already do. And that's where I started going towards building an agency. Yeah. So you couldn't you couldn't make a go at the online poker, huh? You know, I won a couple of tournaments in like the first, like literally the first week after I quit my job, I think I won a three thousand dollar tournament online. And then over the course of about five months, I gave all that back to the uh, to the other other players. Um, so, I, I can imagine. Uh, a, I can imagine with the eight month pregnant wife, right, coming home, she's yeah. like, "All right, she's like, I'm looking for stability. I'm looking for a yeah. home. Can you help me build a nest?" Right? You're like, "All right, here's the deal." Affiliate sites and online poker. We're going to crush it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have a very patient wife. So, so you started getting some more clients. I mean, that, that's a, that's a big up from, you know, you and the coffee shop to 325 people. Um, I guess, was it, was it mostly uh, in like paid media management that was kind of like, you kind of rode that wave? I mean, initially it was Google advertising. I mean, that was all has always been our strength. I mean, I, I was doing Google advertising since the early days of that that whole thing. I mean, people don't realize that in the early days of Google advertising, you used to sign quarterly IOs with them and pay on a CPM basis for ads on Google. I mean, that's how long I've been doing this. So I kind of was one of the, you know, sort of the first 500 people to do Google advertising SEM. So I got a lot of interest from clients about that. Over time, I realized that, especially as we were going after bigger clients, that big clients want one throat to choke. And they don't like the idea of having a Google agency and a paid media, paid social media agency and an SEO agency and an analytics agency and so on and so forth. So we kind of would just listen to our clients. And when we heard enough clients express uh, a need for something, we would start to invest in that and try to find experts to sort of expand the business. So that was initially what was a Google agency it became sort of a general full service performance agency. And, um, you know, one of my one of my adages that I I didn't invent, but an adage that I like is this uh, concept: if you can't be number one in a category, create a category you can be number one in. And you know, I sort of realized early on I'm not going to be the number one SEM agency in the world. Although, arguably, we maybe got to that point. Um, but I said, you know, I, I got to create a category where I can really focus. So I I my category was I want to be the number one SEM agency serving high tech startups in Silicon Valley. So everything I did as I grew the business was designed around attracting those types of clients. So we, we did things that were kind of crazy. We, we bought billboards on Highway 101 here in Silicon Valley. We ran ads on NPR during Marketplace. We hosted client events where we'd have like, we paid to have like Jerry Rice or Barry Bonds come and they sign autographs. Uh, and then I went around to all the venture capitalists in Silicon Valley and I basically introduced myself and said, you know, if any of your clients need help, uh, l- let me know. And so we kind of created this like triangulation in a way where someone would be thinking about working with an SEM agency and, you know, they'd ask their VC and the VC would say, 
work with 3K Digital. Then they drive, they be driving home and they see a billboard for 3K Digital. Then they, they go to some website where marketers all talk about stuff and they'd see people recommending us. So we really sort of built that niche and that's what helped us scale. And it also happened to help that the, the niche that we started with these uh, Silicon Valley startups, they happened to scale pretty quickly. So, you know, we literally had clients where in month one, we were charging them $3,000 a month. And two or three years later, we might be charging them $100,000 a month because they've become multi-billion dollar companies. So it was a, it was a, it was a combination of, I think, uh, being in the right place at the right time and strategically expanding our services and then also having a great rapport with a certain part of the uh, market that was, was growing and we were able to grow with them. Hey, what's up, agency owners? I want to let you know about a hosting platform that is giving digital agencies and creators around the world an edge when it comes to site speed, scalability, and profit. It's called Cloudways, and it's designed to create exceptional experiences for you and your clients that guarantees unmatched performance, reliability, and choice with 24-7 award-winning support. Cloudways is excited to offer our listeners a $50 hosting credit in addition to their amazing benefits of their agency partner program. For more details, head over to yougurus.com slash cloudways or use promo code DASCW when signing up. Let's get back to our show. I see in our, our notes here in 2022, you sold 3Q to DEPT? Yeah, ADAPT. Yeah, all right. So what was that? Was that just like a... Hey, I, I've grown this as far as I uh, can, and now we're moving on. Or was it a, a strategic acquisition? So the, the way we got to that sale was a little uh, unusual. We actually, in 2014, so six years after starting the business, we started getting a lot of interest from acquirers, and we ended up selling to a publicly traded company called Hard Hanks down in uh, Texas. And uh, it was a sort of standard. M&A deal. It was a percentage of money up front and a percentage of money on a performance-based earnout um, for three years. We got to the end of the three years of that performance earnout, and our p- parent company, Hart Hanks, uh, basically said we are not wanting to pay that earnout. <laughs> Trying to say this nicely, um, and so they uh, we went back and forth with them. We tried to get them to sell us to someone else so that we can get our earnout paid. We ended up buying the company back as a management team. And then about a year later, we got interest again from people who wanted to buy us. And this time it was private equity companies that were interested. And so we signed a deal to sell a majority of the company to a couple of private equity investors out of Chicago. Uh, and then that was 2019. And then 2021, I think, I'm getting my dates right. Maybe it was 2022 is when we, when we collectively with the private equity company sold to the debt. So... We we sold the company three times. The intent was to sell it once, but through through weird circumstances, we ended up selling three times. And by the time we sold the depth, I was not the CEO anymore. I was just sort of a strategic advisor and uh, and just playing on the sidelines. Yeah. So so was that like? Uh, I guess in hindsight, did the three sales like did it end up being like financially beneficial, or did that end up having some kind of attrition? Or you know, I I know in in when I've seen some businesses, right, they try to get sold and then maybe a deal falls through and then it kind of like, it does ultimately affect the valuation of the business or, I mean, was it was it a good thing for you guys or a bad thing or? It turned out to be a good thing. Um, I mean, just to put it in sort of imaginary numbers without going into details, but let's say the first time we sold the business, we sold it for $10. We, bought the, we then bought the business back for $6 and then we sold it for $12. 
<laughs> so we ended up getting uh, significantly more than we would have gotten if we had just the first deal had actually happened and that was the last of it. So again, you know, it's better to be lucky than it is to be good sometimes. Um, and uh, we were lucky that the parent company just wasn't in, in the right position to fulfill their obligations contractually and, and enabled us to buy it back. And, and when we bought it back, we knew that we had some, we were on an upswing. So we actually, in about a year, we doubled the EBITDA, which is why we were able to sort of double the amount we, we got um, paid for the company when we sold it. That's super cool. Well, congrats on that. And now you're doing an agentic shift and you've got, yeah, let's talk about the, the M&A topic a little bit because I think that that's, I, you know, I, I see these opportunities for maybe either, you know, agency owners or, or, or entrepreneurs that want to buy an agency, but also we're seeing, you know, some really successful agencies out there and, you know, they want to grow and there are other successful agencies or maybe they're like plateaued agencies and they, maybe the owner wants to get out or they want to, they don't want to do agency anymore. Right. I mean, I'm seeing more of those types of, of situations pop up. And so it seems very uh, timely for that, this topic. What are the, the most common situations that you see for agencies around M and a, is it new people coming in and trying to buy a business or is it, or is it more the merger side of, of putting two together to get one bigger? Yeah, I mean, I think for agencies that have scaled, you know, that are maybe beyond, call it two or three million dollars of, of EBITDA and maybe eight to ten million dollars of revenue, there's typically three scenarios that happen. One is uh, a strategic acquirer, so it's uh, maybe someone who's not a professional acquirer or but is in an ancillary space and says, oh, you know, we really need to get into this agency world because we're going to be able to upsell all of our clients on these services and it's going to be a two plus two equals five situation, and so. That's one type of acquirer. And that can be really great for the agency founder because strategic acquirers get your business and they want they often pay a premium because they see the synergistic effects of working with you. The second one is the private equity investors. And private equity has become a really big player in um, agency M&A. And uh, private equity companies will typically sort of see a finance... Look at your business and say, I, I love what you guys are doing, but I think either I can optimize the uh, finances of the business or I can... Um, or I can, um, sorry, I lost my thought. thought. I can optimize the finances of the business, or I can um, add some additional strategic value to the business that's going to make it more valuable. So they'll buy you. The expectation is typically they hire, they hold you for four to six years, and then they sell you, make more money. Um, and then the last one is the holding companies. You know, the big giant New York agencies like Omnicom and WPP, Publicis, etc. And those companies, typically speaking, they they want to do. All, they want to be all things to all people. So they have to offer every single service to clients all around the world. And so they may find that you know they're lacking, let's say, search engine marketing expertise in Silicon Valley. And they're like, I need to find an agency that does that. And so they go out and they, they buy you. And uh, typically, they're, they're looking to make that acquisition increase their stock value because they're almost all publicly traded. So there are also situations where like a, a friend or a partner comes along and says, like, sometimes a partner buys the agency from the other partners in the business. That's typically with smaller deals. That's like a million dollars of EBITDA or something like that. But those are kind of the main ways that, that agencies get, get bought. Yeah, that's, um, that's cool. So, so like... The um, I mean the private the private equity you mentioned they they come in and optimize the finances. So what is that? They kind of like right size the team and and or outsource or yeah. I mean I think it's a it's a it's a couple of things. I mean 
you know, like, like I said, I mean, a good private equity company is going to come in and have a strategic plan. They're going to have a vision for the business and they're going to say, you know, have you thought about investing in this? And have you thought about acquiring this agency and et cetera. From the financial side, you know, they're just, they just sharpen their pencils and they come in and they say, you know, you're hitting 55% gross margin. What if we ask people to work a couple hours more? <laughs> you know, or what if we, um, <laughs> what if we renegotiated our agreement with your the bank to get a better get better terms on that loan or whatever? I mean, like in, in our instance, you know, I will say, um, you know, I generally believe that like there's this. Uh, if you're familiar with EOS, the Entrepreneur's Operating System, yeah, it's a great sort of methodology for running a business. They talk about how every every business has an, as a visionary and an integrator at the top. The visionary is the guy who's like I. I see the future and I'm going to build this great product in three years now. Everyone's going to see that I'm right. And the integrator is the person who puts out dumpster fires. In my case, I, you know, I had had integrators who had helped me out along the way, but I had never, for example, hired a CFO, even though we were doing tens of millions of dollars of revenue a year. So the first thing that the private equity guys said when they, when they bought a majority of us is, you're hiring a CFO. And I was like, ah, I don't really want to. And they're like, this is not negotiable. You're hiring a CFO. <laughs> And the CFO did amazing things. He came in and he just created order from chaos. And he let me sort of do my visionary stuff, which is like, let's go invest in this thing. But, you know, I can say that our, our EBITDA, our profits increased substantially after this guy came in. And, and also after we brought in a, a CEO to replace me who was more of an integrator. So that's kind of what the, what the private equity guys will do. And, and sometimes they come into a company and it's just perfectly well run and there's no efficiencies and that's fine. They will do the strategic side of things to to grow the business. Yeah, that's cool. It's interesting. I mean, I, I'm I'm a big EOS fan, and but you know that like visionary integrator. Nobody ever is like, oh, you need to bring a CFO in, right? But like, obviously, they can um, you know help you run the business by the numbers and maybe see things that you're overlooking. And I think a lot of visionaries have bias towards. You know, things might be a little bit more optimistic in their minds than, than on the profit loss statement. Or there's that those things that they just like take for granted, or they just like don't really notice anymore because they've been there for so long. Um, right. I used to do things like one of the things I used to do that the CFO put a quick stop to is there was something that they called internally David deals, and basically it was like some startup that I really believed in. I was like, this is a great company, we got to take this company, and they're like, well, our minimum fee is. $15,000 and there's a, a fees to the agency and they're spending $8,000 a month. How is this going to work? And I was like, Oh, just, just take them. And, you know, and I, and I've had, I had some situations. I mean, I had a client that we took on at $3,500 a month of revenue and for us, and in six months they were paying us $70,000. So it had, it did happen. Sometimes that worked out, <laughs> but probably more often than not, I was, I had a soft place in my heart for entrepreneurs and I was taking business that just was never going to be profitable. And so the CFO comes in and says, you know, if you want to spend your your free time giving this company some consulting advice, then go for it. But we're not running the business on David Deals anymore. So that's David, an example. David Deals got got the the can. Like the, on, the online yeah. poker got the can, and the David Deals yeah. got the can. Yeah. So there's a, there's a there's a lot of uh, failed ideas on the way to success, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> So what do you like, I guess, a lot of our listeners, I mean, I know there are listeners, um, agency owners that I know that are, that are doing, you know, the million plus EBITDA and, you know, I mean, I think we could, we could obviously give, give that small group of people some advice today, but I guess what would you say to the companies that are, are in the earlier stages, like maybe some of the things that they should be thinking about um, in terms of exit or whether they could acquire another business or that whether they could be acquired 
you know, what, what kind of advice do you give to that more like studio to small agency, one to 20 people? Yeah. There's a couple of things. I mean, number, I think number one is, you know, when people talk about selling a business, they talk about enterprise value. You know, what is that? What is the business work worth? And when you're at a sub $1 million EBITDA business, the biggest question that people will have, whether you're buying or selling, is the uh, what I would describe as the hit by a bus syndrome, which is like, what happens if the founder leaves or the what founder <laughs> hopefully doesn't get hit by a bus in reality, but how much of the company's success is driven by the founder? And if the founder is the chief sales officer, the chief content creator, the chief account manager, the chief payer of bills, etc., um, it's very hard to buy that business because you're not really buying a business, you're buying an individual. And so the to be sold as a company, the best thing you can do is really to fire yourself from jobs and is to to convince the acquirer that while you still may be important, um, the business is going to be just fine without you. And this also applies to if you're looking to buy a business. I mean, you're looking... If you're doing a half million dollars of EBITDA a year and you find a business that's doing 200,000 hours of EBITDA, and they've got six guys, but the, really it's the founder that's doing everything, then you have to ask yourself, like, what happens if I buy this business and six days later, the founder decides he really wants to start a coffee plantation in Panama? You know, I mean... That that is that is the biggest challenge with with small deals, and that's why typically these big professional acquirers, the private equity companies, the the holding companies, they don't touch deals unless they get to about three million dollars of EBITDA and probably realistically something in the range of thirty to fifty people, because they just can't get around the fact that that the founder is is may not may not be there <laughs> forever. Mm. That's the biggest challenge. I mean, I think that you can still buy you can still buy and sell businesses in that range. One of the things that that's interesting about the mergers and acquisitions space for agencies is that the multiple that you get paid, and it's typically a multiple on EBITDA. So your last 12 months of EBITDA is what people judge a business on. The multiple increases as your as your EBITDA increases. So for example, if you're a million, let's say you're a half million dollar EBITDA company, you may be getting, someone may offer you three times your last 12 months EBITDA. So $1.5 million for the business. If you're a $10 million EBITDA business, you could quite possibly get 12 times your last 12 months. So now you're getting $120 million for a $10 million business and $3 million for a $500,000 business. So so deals definitely take place at that level. And there, of course, there are some online brokers that, like uh, Barney that people are probably familiar with that can get those deals done. But the dynamics are different, both in terms of what people are concerned about and how much you get paid. Yeah. Hey, agency owners. Are you looking for a strategic and reliable white-label partner to scale your agency business? E2M is the number one white-label partner for digital agencies when it comes to website design, web development, e-commerce, SEO, and content writing. E2M is trusted by over 150 agency partners and has been providing white-label services for the last 10 years. Their team has over 170 experts and is on a mission to help 500 agencies increase their revenue and profit margins with impactful white-label services. Check out their transparent and flexible white-label pricing at e2msolutions.com forward slash gurus. That's www.e2msolutions.com forward slash U-G-U-R-U-S. E2M is currently running a special discount for 10% off for your first three months. Check it out now. It's available for a limited time. It's great for people to like have those numbers. And I mean, some people might be listening to this going, hey, you know, 1.5 million. That sounds great, right? But I think when you start to pencil out, like if you have a business partner, how much are you going to pay in taxes? You know, what, how much effort and work is going to take you? 
you know, if you could spend another three years in business and get up to a higher EBITDA and potentially that puts you at a, you know, a five or six X, right? Like, you know, those extra couple of years of doing that work might be well worth the effort when you, when you look at it. Yeah. And it's also the case that it's quite often, it's all quite often the case that whoever's buying the business will put a, a non-compete, non-solicit agreement into the contract. So you may say to yourself, I'm selling this business for 1.5 million. Maybe I get half and my partner gets half. So I'm making $750,000. But they may say you can't work for three years. So you have to figure out, at least in this industry. And that's, that's legal. I mean, that's, some people say, oh, like, you know, California is known as a, as a state where non-competes are on their face invalid. But it's not true if you sell equity. If you sell equity on almost any state, the acquirer can say you can't work in this space anymore, period. And so your $750,000 sounds great until you have to sit on the sidelines for three years and not make any income because that's the only thing you know how to do. And, and you put a, a caveat there, if you sell equity. So like if you're an employee of a business and, and they make you sign a non-compete, you have a lot of leverage in what the courts might consider to be a non-competitive or whether that's even binding. But if you sell a business, it's different. It's very state specific, but in almost, I mean, I'm, I'm in every state, if you sell equity, you can be held to a non compete. In California, which is where I live, if you don't sell equity, even if you sign an agreement as an employee that says, I agree not to compete, it's not, it's, it's invalid on its face. It's a sort of a matter of public policy in California that you cannot be held to a non compete if you're not selling your equity. Mm, interesting. Yeah. But I've got, I, I, I will say, Brent, just to, as a, an aside, I mean, I've had people when we're selling equity and they, they say, okay, we want all of you guys to sign up for three-year non-competes, you and your founding team. And I've often said to them, I said, look, I mean, it makes sense for sign me up for a three-year non-compete, sign me up for a five-year non-compete. I'm getting the lion's share of the, the revenue here from this transaction. But for the sort of the VP of marketing who has a half percent of the business, who's going to make $75,000 on this deal and now has to sign a three-year non-compete, it makes no sense. So you do have to really be careful and as a founder and think about people other than yourself, because it can really be literally can almost like lead people to bankruptcy to have an exit and then not be able to work because they didn't get paid enough during the exit. Where they, they technically, they sold equity, but maybe the value of that equity deal or they got dragged along with the terms. Was dragged not along. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Hmm. What about like the agencies that want to use acquisition as a, as a growth strategy? Like how should I, Maybe what are some things I should think about in terms of whether that's right for me or whether I could stomach those kind of deals versus trying to just grow organically? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, people say that most M&A deals, I don't know, that, I don't think they say they fail, but I say, would say they say they don't work out the way they intended. And I think it's kind of analogous to when you're an employee of a company and uh, when you're at the company you're at, you only see the warts. And when you're looking at a new company, you only see the opportunities. And I think that is a real risk with m and I mean, you, you meet the founders, you have this kumbaya moment. Wow, this is great. We're going to do so much business together. But inevitably, it's not always what it seems. And I, I will share that um, I did one acquisition in the history of, of 3Q. And we acquired a company that had a great management team. Um, they had unique service offerings that we did not have that I thought made, it, made us very synergistic. And we did the deal on, on good terms. And I found out after we closed the deal, I mean, I'm not a professional acquirer, so I don't know the due, how to do due diligence like maybe an investment banker would. I found out that about a third, maybe about 20% of the revenue came from a, a adult domain names. 
And, um, you know, they were just doing affiliate revenue on adult domain names. And I was like, you know, we, this is not the business we want to be in. And I just didn't know. I just, I don't know what it was hidden somewhere in the finances that this is where it was coming from. So we sold, we sold it off at a loss, but that's like an extreme example of where, you know, you do a deal. It sounds, seems great. And then you realize there's always some, something in the, something in the attic that comes out. That's in the attic for sure. That's like, it was in the attic. And you're like, man, they got 20% profit on this business. It's wonderful. Yeah. Then you're like, Oh, the 20% is big. Is subsidized, not right? The business I want to be in. So, <laughs> yeah, I think that's the most challenging thing: trying to do due diligence and really sort of uncover, like, is this a cultural fit? Are the finances going to hold? Are they going to keep scaling? Do you like the people that you're doing a deal with? But if you can do all those, if you do all those things. I mean, if you're if you're patient enough and you look at a lot of deals, you eventually will find opportunities that really can scale the business. That really are those two point two plus two equals five moments that that drive a ton of value. That's awesome. Well, David, this has been a lot of fun, man. I, I I love this conversation. I feel like in the great game of business, mergers and acquisitions, exits. I mean, it's it's a fun topic. It's like shiny topic. <laughs> like it takes a lot of work, though, right? To do the deals, to merge businesses. Like it's it's a whole thing. So some people think like, oh, one day I want to exit, right? But you're like, you know, I think as, as somebody for personally, it's done a couple times, right? I mean, it's got to be the right deal and. And it it always does take a lot of work and it sucks a lot of oxygen out of the room and and hopefully you can build a business that's successful first and then, you know, and figure out when and if that makes sense for you. Do you have time to stick around for a quick lightning round? Sure. I don't know what 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 I'm to expect, but let's let's do it. What is the best advice you've ever received? Uh, you don't get what you deserve, you get what you negotiate. Which of your personal habits has contributed most to your success? Just my fascination with tech and, and internet. Speaking of internet, can you share an internet resource, a tool or app that you've been using lately that you think our listeners would find valuable? Using lately? I mean, I can't. I was going to say ChatGPT. I mean, I know that's the worst answer. I'll say, uh, I'll say uh, MidJourney, which is maybe a little hipper than ChatGPT. What book would you recommend for our listeners? Uh, I really like Persuasion. I think it's called Persuasion by Robert Cialdini. Awesome. We will link out to Persuasion as well as uh, ChatGPT and the other things we referenced in today's episode at yougurus.com slash podcast. So if you're out there on the road or on your bike or taking a run, um, just check out yougurus.com. Click on podcast. If you're listening this week, of, you'll see David's photo at the top. Just click on David. And you'll get lots of tips, takeaways, links, all that good stuff. David, how can folks find out more about you? Is there anything that you have that they can check out? Yeah, so they can visit my website, agenticshift.com. Uh, I also did write a book. I should have recommended my own book, I guess. It's called uh, Selling Your Marketing Agency. Uh, it's available on uh, Amazon. Very cool. Well, we would have we would have pushed you for another book recommendation even if you did. So appreciate <laughs> you re- recommending uh, Persuasion. And we'll link out... We will link out to your book. So Selling Your Marketing Agency. Check that out in our show notes. We'll link out to that so people can buy that. If you're thinking about exit, if you think about positioning yourself from exit, like I, I have to tell you, like as somebody who has sold a couple of businesses, bought a couple agencies, the more you can do earlier in the business to prepare yourself... Um, it's not something you should be thinking about all the time, but it's like, hey, how do you build a great business? Positioning yourself for exit from the start is always a is a good idea, right? But people want to buy profitable businesses. They want to buy businesses with systems and structure and all that good stuff. So so check out David's book uh, and those links and link out to MidJourney as well over at yougurus.com slash podcast. David, thank you so much for stopping by the program. Thanks, Brent. Really enjoyed it. 
And that's it for this week's episode of the Digital Agency Show. Stay tuned each and every week for more great content coming to you to help you grow digital agency so you can achieve freedom in business and life. Until next time, I'm Brent Weaver. We've put together an agency accelerator package for agency owners and growing freelancers looking to scale. We've got all kinds of free resources like the 39 Lead Gen Strategies Checklist, our $20,000 website proposal template, live trainings hosted by yours truly, free access to our community group, and much, much more. Get access now and dive in at yougurus.com forward slash agency. That's yougurus.com forward slash agency. 